Alrighty folks, and welcome to the Chronicler Podcast Channel. Episode 14, Sun Tzu and the Art of War. Now, just a quick note, before I get into today's podcast, I did issue a vote on my Instagram story about having a Chinese New Year special with the holiday coming up, and the vote was an overwhelming yes. So thank you very much everyone, especially for those who participated. So, on Friday, the 12th of February, there will be another episode from The Chronicler, which will discuss the Chinese New Year and the stories behind the festival. So tune in for that. Just remember, 12th of February, this Friday. Every battle is won before it is fought. Here's a nice wee quote from our main topic of today. So as we move on through the spring and autumn period, and yes, we are still in amongst this slugfest of philosophy and warfare and backstabbery and revenge and all of these things, and the most important aspect for all of these different straits who had sprung up was military strategies. And it makes sense. If you're in amongst a world where everyone's first priority is to survive by any means possible, you better have a few tricks up your sleeves when it comes to the military. This was a time when two states would ally with each other because there was a larger state who was a mutual threat to both of them. But as soon as that threat was gone, however, the two former allies would turn on each other and tear themselves to pieces. That's why I want to stress, in case I haven't already touched upon this, all of these philosophies, Confucianism by the sage Kun Tzu, Taoism by Lao Tzu, Legalism by Han Feizi, and the other 100 schools of thought, were all attempts to find the answers to the problems faced by the peoples in the realm at the time. So basically, a way to stop all of the fighting. So, it's all fine and dandy to talk about ritual and how humans are nice, or learning about the Tao, or even just being heavily focused on trying to issue out rewards and punishments, but that only deals with the populace. What if you're actually at war with another state? What good would an attitude of Wu Wei do for an emperor, or sorry, a king at the time, if that were to happen? Remember, Wu Wei is a Taoist concept, it means to purposefully do nothing. Imagine that. My king, soldiers are invading from the north. Aha, it's okay. Once they see how chill we are, they won't invade. Don't get me wrong, I really like the concept of Wu Wei. If you feel yourself stressing out, just practice Wu Wei and do nothing for a while. You can figure out a lot. I mean, I try this with my wife, so like, if I'm done sitting on the couch doing nothing, and she gets angry at me saying, oh, you need to do something, I'm just, I just say, look, chill out. I'm practicing woo-wee. And the thing is, she doesn't really have an answer, because I am doing nothing on purpose. <laughs> the thing is, I'm just not thinking. That's the problem. Anyway, put that side note away. That being said, it wasn't practical on an institutional level. And especially in the dog-eat-dog world that was the Spring and Autumn period, followed by the Warren States period, which we'll get into later on. This is where our main topic of the day comes into this episode, Sun Tzu, or Sun Wu, or Sun Tzu, which is known as in the West. 
Call them what you like, but I'm going to stick with the Z theme. Considering everyone, uh, sorry, but considering everyone else has a Z as their given name, who became philosophers or something, I think it's nice to keep it as Sun Tzu, because that's what he's kind of called in Chinese anyway. So, Sun Tzu was probably born in the state of Qi at around 544 BC, so we're edging our way closer to the end of the spring and autumn period at this time. And I feel like I better do this now, considering that we're going to talk about military affairs, and then, like, well, basically from here on out. Um, I've kind of neglected not saying which state is where, and I've not really went into a lot of detail. Um, all I've really said is just go and look at a map, but I feel like I need to explain it now just to, to make the podcast make a bit more sense. So, here we go. In a clockwise direction from the furthermost north, around the periphery zone, kind of states, and then we will get into the interior. So, by the time of Sun Tzu, you had the state of Yan, which encompassed areas such as modern-day Beijing. They were in the furthest north. To the south of them, you have the state of Qi, which encompassed modern-day Shandong province and Hebei province. The state of Lu, which was kinda in the middle plains, hugging the east coast between the Yellow River and the Yangtze River. The south of the Lu, you had the state of Wu, which grew up along the banks of the Yangtze River, as it emptied out into the Pacific Ocean. So think of modern day Shanghai, Suzhou, etc. That's where the state of Wu were. And to the farther south of them, you had what the Chinese called at the time the Nanman people which literally means Southern Barbarians. You know, those from those people from the Central Plains of Antiquity, they really did turn their noses up at the Southerners at this time. And you'll see in future podcasts, as hand culture begins to expand, uh, all of these people who are known as the Nanman get driven further south. So it's like modern-day Vietnamese people, etc. Anyway. So now, from the state of Wu to the west, you have their neighbours, who were Chu Guo, or the state of Chu. The Chu grew up along the banks of the Yangtze River, and it was more inland. So think of provinces such as Hebei, you know, where the coronavirus broke out. Think of there. Then we move northwest to the state of Qin, and I don't think I really need to say much more about them, because we're going to cover them in a lot of detail very shortly. Then finally, in the periphery states, you have the state of Jin, who were in modern-day, I guess, northern Shanxi, uh, Shanxi provinces, like those kinds of areas. So, that's just the states on the perimeter of this war-ridden area of the world for the time. So let's look at the interior. These states all pretty much hugged the Yellow River Valley, and although they had the least amount of land, they certainly had the most prestige, or so they thought. So, you had the state of Wei, Tao, Song, Chen, Tai, Zheng, and then finally the state of Zhou. Remember those guys who conquered all of this territory before? And now, they only have the city of Luoyang. How the mighty have fallen. For now, all you need to know is that these inner states kind of get gobbled up eventually, and it is the states on the exterior who benefit the most from this time period, as we will soon see. And I want to stress this as well, 
this isn't the way the spring and autumn period was the entire time. It was more states would pop up everywhere, then they would get gobbled up, and then they would pop up again, and they would just keep going and going and going. Um, but yeah, that's just a little overview of where the states were, so to speak, at this time anyway. At the time of Sunzu. And speaking of Sunzu, he was, he was born in the state of Chi, blah blah blah, and then he entered the service for the state of Wu. Now this is where Sunzu really begins to shine. And there is an interesting story about his trial shift as the commander of the King of Wu's army. So here it is. The King of Wu, called He Lu, basically said, If you think you're a great general, then make my concubines into a fighting unit. A very unusual request, considering that it was very unwomanlike to join the military or even fight in a war. And the king's concubines, no less. And for those of you who do not know, a concubine is another fancy word for wife. Kings and later emperors had many, many wives in China, as you'll soon see. So anyway, Sun Tzu agrees to the test, and the very next day he divides the king's concubines into two units. At this time, everyone, including the concubines, were probably thinking, wait, is this guy serious? Sun Tzu asked them if they knew the difference between left, right, forward or back, to which they replied, yes. That is when Sun Tzu put the king's two favourite concubines as the leaders of the two units. He then ordered the men to beat the war drums and shouted, Turn left! To which all of the concubines burst out into laughter. <laughs> Sun Tzu then sighed, looked up to heaven, and then he said, as the general, it was his fault if his soldiers didn't understand the command. So, he started again. The war drums were beaten once again, and then he shouted, Turn left! To which, all of the concubines burst into a fit of laughter once again. Sun Tzu then said, If the general's orders were clear, but the soldiers didn't obey, it isn't the general who is at fault, but the commanders. Therefore, the blame was placed onto the king's favourite two concubines, and from there he ordered them to be beheaded. Now remember, the king was watching this presentation, and got a bit of a fright to say the least. He protested to Sun Tzu, asking him to spare them, but the latter replied, Having once received his majesty's commission as general of his forces, there are certain commands of his majesty which acting in that capacity I am unable to accept. So basically, Sun Tzu gave the king a cold shoulder. And with that, the two women were promptly beheaded. <coughs> After the two favourite concubines were killed, Sun Tzu ordered the two uh, next in line to be installed as the captains of the battalions. The war drums sounded once again, and Sun Tzu ordered them all to turn right. All of them turned right in unison, as they all knew now the consequences if they dared to disobey. They were able to march, stop, and obey all of the general's commands. Sun Tzu then went to the king and said to him, Your soldier, sire, 
are now properly drilled and disciplined, and ready for your majesty's inspection. They can be put into any use that their sovereign may desire. Bid them to go through fire and water, and they will not disobey. The king then replied, Let our generals cease drilling and return to camp. As for us, we have no wish to come down and inspect the troops. Probably through sobs, as his two favourite wives have just been killed after all. Afterwards, Sun Tzu was appointed as the head of the army. Now the thing with this story is that surely, surely the king could have just, well, I don't know, stopped the executions. But no, he got dictated to by a man who was only applying for a job. He hadn't even gotten it yet. Although in saying that, I do quite like the thought that if a concubine misbehaved in some way against the king, he could just say, don't make me get Sun Tzu. So that was the appointment taken care of. Sun Tzu is now the leader of the army of the state of Wu. It was probably just as well because the state of Chu to the west looked like they were going to attack, which they were. So now it was time for Sun Tzu to shine. And to go with his own words again, he said, never interrupt your enemy when he is making a mistake. And that is exactly what the Chu were doing. Sun Tzu then led his men to a complete victory at the Battle of Boju. Now the thing is, I don't want to get into too much detail about it, and the reason being that there is a little bit of doubt over where Sun Tzu even fought the battle or not. And to be fair, there's even doubt over if Sun Tzu actually existed. So the art of war that he's credited with making is actually put into a bit of doubt, not for like the work that was made, but the man who made it. Some people argue that it was a group of people who came up with the art of war, and therefore just named it Sun Tzu. But that's that's debatable. I'll leave that to whatever you want to do. I want to lean towards more that Sun Tzu was a real guy, just because it's cooler, and it sounds awesome if he was a real guy. But anyway, that's by the by. So yeah, back to the Battle of Boju. Like I said, I don't want to waste time just because... Like, yeah, we don't know if Sun Tzu was actually involved in the battle or not. All we need to know is that the state of Chu were soundly defeated, which then resulted in many more campaigns fought by the state of Wu. And if you want to believe the tales, Sun Tzu brought the state of Wu to the top of its military height. These wars inspired his greatest work, the art of war, or in Chinese, Sun Tzu Bingfa. This is where the previous quotes have came from, and honestly, this book, if you haven't read it, just read it. Because it's just so good. It's one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing I've ever seen. And it isn't a large book as well, so, I mean, it would probably take you an afternoon to read it. There's not a lot of words in it. Um, so The Art of War comprises of 13 chapters, which talks about, well, war, obviously. And the chapters go like this. Chapter 1. Laying Plans. Chapter 2. Waging War. Chapter 3, Attack by Stratagem. Chapter 4, Tactical Dispositions. Chapter 5, Energy. Chapter 6, Weak Points and Strong. Chapter 7, Maneuvering. Chapter 8, Variation in Tactics. Chapter 9, 
the army on the march. Chapter 10, Terrain. Chapter 11, The Nine Situations. Chapter 12, The Attack by Fire. And chapter 13, Spies. Now the remarkable thing is, within these chapters, Sun Tzu also kind of promotes peace in a way. Well, I won't call it peace, but more like peaceful ways to defeat the enemy. For example, he says, the supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. Or again, later on in the book, he says, the greatest victory is that which requires no battle. Even then, he goes on to mention that generals shouldn't rush into every battle presented to them. In other words, pick your battles. Wait for the enemy to show weaknesses while you show your strength. Sun Tzu also mentions, for example, if you are outnumbered and cannot win, then hide. If you have the numerical advantage, then you should fight. And again, another quote. It is the rule in war, if you have ten times the enemy's strength, surround them. If five, attack them. If twice as many, engage them. If equal, find a way to divide them. If fewer, be able to evade them. If weaker, hide from them. Now the thing is, when you look at that, that's... It does make strategic sense, like, if you've got more men and your enemy's in a desperate position, then it's better to surround them, obviously. Um, the only thing that I could say is that there are, there are times where, you know, a numerically inferior force defeats a much larger force. And it happens a lot in Chinese history. Um, for example, you've got the Battle of Guandu which was fought between Tao Tao and Yuan Shao during the Three Kingdoms period, which I'll get to of God knows when. But basically, Yuan Shao had around 700,000 men, and Tao Tao had less than a seventh of that, and Tao Tao still won the battle. So I get where Sun Tzu's coming from, but the thing is, this is what's really unique about Sun Tzu's Art of War, because even though he says these things, he talks about all of the other aspects of war. So, for example, training your troops well, disciplining them. And that's exactly what Tao Tao had over Yuan Shao. His troops were so much more disciplined, therefore they won. So it's just those little things. The Art of War is really open to interpretation. And lots of generals have read this book, for obvious reasons. Now the thing is, I can keep going on and on and on about how the book deals with every situation and every detail, such as environmental factors to consider in warfare, supplies, the drains on the state, terrain, all the way down to gathering intelligence and being realistic about your own strength. But I won't. Just read the book yourself. Sun Tzu Bingfa has influenced warfare in China ever since its inception. You know, just like that story of the Battle of Guandu, which I just mentioned. Everyone wanted to read it in order to understand warfare, and to try and use this information to conquer themselves new land. Which obviously makes sense, especially during the Spring and Autumn period. So for example, China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi, boldly said that without the art of war, he would never have conquered the other states. 
Even Chairman Mao, some 2,500 years later, said he learned from the art of war in order to unify China under the communists in 1949. There are so many other examples I can throw at you, such as the Vietnamese when they were fighting the French and at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't know, but that's the way I'm going. Dien Bien Phu. The Vietnamese general said he won because he used tactics described in the art of war. So that just goes to show how remarkable this book is, because even though it was written 2,500 years ago about warfare, and this was a time where warfare was really up close and personal. You had to like physically stab your opponents with a sword or a spear. I mean, there were crossbows as well. But like, you've got people in the modern age using this book to win battles, even when we've got tanks and airplanes and all of this stuff. That's what just that's what makes it truly remarkable. And as well as that, it's created a huge legacy, not just inside the military, but outside the military as well. The art of war, as much as it talks about warfare, can be applied to pretty much everything else. Life in general is always at war. Now think about it. Whether it's on a microbial level, or something as simple as plants competing for sunlight, or a cheetah chasing a gazelle, all the way up to the world wars, or if you could, e- you could even find something as simple as having a battle with your inner self. Humans and animals, all of these things, are at a constant state of war. Therefore, this book can be applied to all aspects of life. The book as well talks about the environmental factors of war. So, think about it like this, right? If you're a business man, and you have a big meeting, you really need to secure this deal. Now, the other business person could be way overconfident and offer you to choose a place to meet. That's great for you, as you choose the terrain where you'll have a battle, or should I say, discuss the agreement. But think about it. That's a battle in itself. It's one side trying to get the upper hand over the other, and if you pick the environment that is comfortable for you, you better make sure it's not comfortable for your enemy, because then that way you will win. The first thing that popped into my head when I was actually saying this was that scene from The Wolf of Wall Street, where Jordan Belford brings in Steve Madden to his office, and just before Steve Steve Madden enters, he has all of his employees riled up shouting abuse as soon as they come in. In other words, Jordan Belford made sure that Steve Madden was as uncomfortable as possible, whilst he was in his comfort zone. Therefore, he gets the deal that he wants and he wins. The Art of War talks about things just like this. Therefore, I encourage you to read the bloody book. Just because Sun Tzu says in the book that you choose the battle, the battleground yourself. Don't let the enemy force you to fight in a place that you're not comfortable with. So it's all about that as well. So like I said, many CEOs in big companies have all read this book. Even football managers, such as Philip Scolari. Scolari even said it helped him win the 2002 World Cup with Brazil. This book can be applied to so many different things in life, so I urge you to read it if you ever get the chance. So that's that. A little bit about The Art of War, written by Sun Tzu. I bet he never thought that people would still read his book even two and a half thousand years after it was written. Yet here we are. 
Now, you can get a free audio version of the book on Spotify. I've listened to it, and it was actually really quite good. And like that, I think the whole thing was about an hour long. So by all means, you can listen to it on Spotify. Or if you want to buy the physical book so you can examine it word for word over and over and over again, you can get it on Amazon for around £7. Now, if you have read the book, feel free to let me know what you thought of it. Did you enjoy it? Or did you think it was a bit overrated? Just let me know. Now, I also have to mention this again. A special will be coming up on Friday the 12th of February, which discusses the Chinese New Year, and I'm going to select two of the stories that surround it. So tune in for it on Friday. Now, I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you on Friday on the Chronicler Podcast channel. Thanks for listening.